is Upfront on the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Gungani in Washington. Thank you so much for joining us. This week on the show, we talk about a new report that says that Nigeria's Bayelsa state will need at least $12 billion to clean up decades-long oil pollution and restore environmental health in the country's crude oil producing states. You know, what was particularly shocking was that as a, the result of the of the um, groundwater and surface water samples that we took demonstrated um, uh, access to World Health Organization standards of between a hundred and in some cases um, up to a million times the target value for the maximum amount of a particular um, PAH, so vastly exceeding what are considered um, healthy, healthy quantities in an environment. Dr. Zalek is a researcher with the Bielsa State Oil and Environmental Commission, which was tasked with investigating the environmental and human damage caused by oil companies in Bielsa State. She will talk to us about the findings plus the recommendations made by the report. And a Kenyan scientist and National Geographic explorer joins us to talk about her work to raise awareness about the importance of mangroves and the threats they face in places like Kenya and Brazil. Mangroves facing is very important to note that some of these threats are also country dependent depending on how each community is using their, their mangroves and depending on the level of protection each country is giving. That is Dr. Margaret Awar, an environmental scientist and National Geographic explorer. But first, let's hear from you, our listeners. Now, the UN says that women and girls remain underrepresented in the science, technology, and mathematics fields, and that they are less likely to enter tech-related careers. So we asked you for your suggestions on what can be done to encourage more young women to join STEM fields. This is what you said. Girls are good in science, so we just need to change that mindset of boys being the best in in town. And then there are some doctors who are around, and there are female doctors. Those doctors should be coming out, speaking in public, telling girls that they have done it, and they can also do it in school. Yeah, The, the doctors who are female should be role models and they should be informing the other girls who are in schools that science is good for them and they can do well. Uh, what should be done is to, as in done to encourage girls to take science subjects, I think, uh, first of all, begins at home. Uh, parents should be educated. They should be taught how, you know, to in- involve the girls and, let me say generally, the children to teach them some things at home. Sometimes they feel, they fear the science subjects because science, normally when you talk about it, it is more to do, you know, the reproductive organs and other things with the human being. That's what normally goes to your mind. Now, the thing is like this, you know, we girls actually, we, we tend sometimes to branch away from the science subjects. When you try to look at the nurses and, and, and the doctors we have around there, majority are men. So what I want to say, and maybe what can encourage them to do science is are the teachers themselves at school. Many thanks for your opinions. This is Upfront on the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Vungani. A new report commissioned by Bayelsa State, that is one of the major oil-producing states in the Niger Delta, says that the state requires at least $12 billion to clean up decades-old oil spills, which have taken place over a 12-year period. A report by the Bayelsa State Oil and Environmental Commission 
singled out international oil companies, including Shell and Eni, as being responsible for much of the pollution in the region. The inquiry found, among other things, that harmful chemicals from spills and gas flaring were found in samples of soil, water, air, and the blood of local residents were several times higher than the safe limits. That is according to the commission, which stated that it found, quote, failures of strategy, prevention, response, and remediation by all companies, end quote. Dr. Anna Zalik is one of the researchers and writers of the report. She joins me via Skype to talk about some of the findings and recommendations in the report. Anna, thank you so much for joining us today on Upfront. Uh, let me start off by asking you to, to tell us about the background of the commission and its mandate. Okay, thank you so much, Jackson. So the commission was established in 2019 to look into um, the impact of oil pollution on the state of Bayelsa in Nigeria, which is one of the parts of the country that has been most affected by the impact of the oil and gas industry. Um, it, it's also a region that, as opposed to, say, the Agoni region and River State, has largely fallen out of international attention, despite the fact that it's been devastated by decades of oil pollution. And why by Elsa? Well, I mean, it's one of the smallest states in Nigeria. Why did the study concentrate on this particular state? And how was the research carried out? So um, although Bayels is a small state, as you mentioned, Jackson, of 2.3 million people, it has received a much disproportionate amount of pollution. So the estimates are that 1.5 and potentially in some regions up to six, um, six barrels of oil have spilled per individual currently alive in the state today. And it's a region that um, is, is largely... Um, considerably made up of riverine areas of swampland that are not particularly accessible where oil pollution has been largely hidden from public view. So it's an area that's been particularly devastated by pollution um, and has not been compensated in a form sufficient. The research undertaken for the commission involved the review of um, a huge amount of now published material, as well as the commissioning of a number of independent reports, um, hundreds of interviews, and as well as various site visits and discussions with community members um, across Bielsa State. And what is the history of, uh, of oil exploration in, in Nigeria? How, how, how long have these uh, international uh, oil and gas companies, or even individuals, been extracting natural resources, this natural resource in, in this area? So oil was, in fact, first um, discovered in commercial quantities in Bayelsa State, in um, Oloibari, in what is today Bayelsa State. It was in a historic, um, another part of, it was made up of, a, it was a portion of another state at that time. But in any case, it is Bayelsa where oil was discovered in Nigeria um, now six decades ago. And it is a region which has had sustained um, production since that period and remains a significant source. 25% of oil produced in Nigeria comes from Bielsa State. Um, Nigeria was at one point um, the most significant supplier of oil and gas to the United States from the African continent. So when I was conducting 
my doctoral re research in this region 20 years ago. At that time, um, Nigeria ranked as the fifth largest supplier of oil to the United States in the world. So for somebody sitting in Washington, D.C., I think that's important because since the, you know, um, the sort of boom, the fracking boom in the U.S., the history of U.S. dependence on some of these regions has been forgotten. Mm. And what, what are some of the key findings of the Commission on the impact of oil exploration to the environment and, and to the general health of the local communities? So, you know, what was particularly shocking was that as a, the result of the, of the um, groundwater and surface water samples that we took demonstrated um, uh, access to World Health Organization standards of between 100 and in some cases um, up to a million times the target value for the maximum amount of a particular um, PAH, so um, aromatic hydrocarbon or, or total petroleum hydrocarbon in, in this region. So, you know, vastly exceeding what are considered um, healthy, healthy quantities in an environment. Um, one of the things that, you know, I think was particularly stark in the lead up to, um, to the inauguration of the commission was the publication of a report or of, a, of an article in, in a leading science journal um, that was co-authored by one of the members of the expert working group that demonstrated causality between oil spills and miscarriages. Um, in the Niger Delta. And this, this was, you know, while it was something that was sort of assumed to be the case for many who studied the region, um, you know, the, the, that, is a, that is an extremely um, powerful and disturbing finding that demonstrates arguably, I mean, a long history of systemic racism in the way the oil and gas industry has operated internationally. In case you're just joining us, we are chatting with Dr. Anna Zalif. She's a faculty member in the program of Global Geography, Environmental and Urban Change at York University in Canada, where she teaches in the areas of international environmental politics. Dr. Zalik is talking to us about this new report by the Bayelsa State Oil and Environmental Commission, for which is one of the authors. Let me ask you before before we get into any positives and maybe some recommendations, I wanted to ask you, how, how do we explain the failure uh, to regulate the impact of these oil companies, whether it comes from the, the gas flaring, the oil spills, the releasing of uh, toxic contaminants uh, into the water and into the environment? What explains that the states fail to play its you know, regulatory role? So, you know, much is made of um, internal corruption and regulatory problems within the Nigerian state. Um, and, you know, one would not argue that these are not features of the broader context. But I think what is most significant is that that context has become highly profitable um, for the oil and gas industry because it allows it to reduce its costs of production in the region. So, you know, from a perspective of looking at the systemic causes, it's really corporate criminality um, and profiteering over a context where it doesn't have to pay, pay for its pollution that is, you know, at the root of, of the problem. What are the recommendations of the, of the report? How can this damage be redressed? 
So, you know, um, we have a series of recommendations that call for an overhaul in the regulatory system, so point at, at the concerns that, that you just raised, Jackson, but also call for a 12-billion-dollar um, a 12, um, a 12 remediation fund, and that figure is calculated based on um, an extrapolation from the number of hectares that the United, United Nations Environment Program um, assumed the amount of funds that would be required to clean up the Agoni region in River State um, in the 2011 report that was produced to Bielsa State, which is a much larger region than the Agoni area. So, um, you know, from the perspective of the requirements of the transnational firms, that is obviously, you know, a significant um, figure. But the 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 recommendations also call for, you know, independent and consistent monitoring of health impacts for a much improved process of reporting on spills. Um, you know, there's been extreme negligence in reporting on spills um, for decades. And that's one of the reasons why um, the pollution, you know, problem in Bielsa has become so serious. And you said $12 billion. Uh, it is indeed a, a substantial figure uh what realistically uh oh how are you, how realistic is this that it could be it will be raised or what kind of mechanisms are in place uh for that money for those resources for those funds to be collected and actually people to use uh if they're ever released uh by these companies uh but most importantly is there fear that you know, 12 billion dollars will come and then you know for the same reason <laughs> it will not it will not just disappear into the ether. So, you know, the commission has recognized that there have been many, many recommendations and reports issued on the Niger Delta going back various decades. And what we've called for is the development of an international body that would work um, with the Bielsa state government in the allocation of funds, um, that these funds would be determined independently of the oil and gas industry so that, um, you know, pro many... Part of the problem, the corruption problem, has arisen from um, a, a set of conditions where the oil and gas industry allocated and managed a lot of the funding to what are referred to as the host communities or the impacted communities. We're calling for a very stringent system that will allow for the you know allocation of funds to the areas that most require it um, in Bielsa. And, you know, with a recognition that um, there needs to be demands and pressures put on transnational firms to pay for the damages that they've caused in the region. Mm -hmm. what, what kind of, uh, I guess, what kind of um, collaboration did you have with the local communities in Bielsa, the ones that are actually affected by this situation? this issue? So, you know, a considerable amount of work was done with colleagues based in Bielsa State who undertook um, additional field visits to the ones that the commission commissioners took. Um, we met on various occasions with members of Bielsa Civil Society um, among our among our um, among the commissioners is um, Dr. Isaac Asume Asuoka, who is um, you know, has been a, an important figure in the Niger Delta struggles for justice going back various decades and is deeply rooted within civil society in the region. Um, we met with key representatives of environmental NGOs in the region. 
with legal representatives of communities affected by the oil and gas industry. Anna, thank you so much for taking time to chat with us here on The Voice of America about this report. Thank you so much, Jackson, for your time and, and attention to this. Thank you. That was Dr. Anna Zalik. She's a faculty member in the program in Global Geography, Environmental and Urban Change at York University. She also teaches in the areas of international environmental politics and the political ecology of extraction. Dr. Zalik was talking to us about the new report by the Bielsa State Oil and Environmental Commission about the impact of oil extraction on the people and the environment of the state. And studies show that at one time, Bayelsa State was home to one of the largest mangrove forests on the planet. However, today, it is one of the most polluted places on Earth. Our next guest tells me that in many parts of the developing world, mangroves are under danger, despite the fact that they benefit both people and the environment. Mangroves are tropical marine forests that are important for the sustenance of the local communities by providing food, shelter, and nursery environments for fish and other sea creatures. They also shield coastlines from erosion and storm surge. Dr. Margaret Awar is an environmental scientist and National Geographic explorer. She has studied mangroves and communities around them in places like Kenya and Brazil. And she tells me that mangrove forests are being destroyed due to activities by coastal populations who use its wood for building, for fuel, and even medicines. And this in addition to climate change effects like rising temperatures and sea levels. She joins me via Skype from Switzerland. Dr. Margaret, thank you so much for joining us. I want to start off by asking you to explain to our viewers and our listeners uh, how mangroves differ from other trees and what their importance is when it comes to protecting, uh, say, the tropic oceanic systems. Mangroves are, I would say, basically they are trees and shrubs that grow in saline waters along the coastline. So they are referred to as coastal forests, I would call them, in simple terms. Because then if you go into the sands, to be more, more, more of definition, and they're quite important for coastal protection, and they're also important for fish, as fish breeding areas. So we have fish that are specifically breeding in the mangroves. Um, they're also important since they sequester carbon, they sink carbon that we released from the environment. So this helps us mitigate or reduce the impacts of climate change. And they're quite specific because they only grow along coastline in, in saline waters. Mm. So they grow within the intertidal, the low and high tide regions. So mangroves yeah. are actually a species of trees. Uh, I will not say it's a species of trees because mangroves has got different species depending on different regions that they are growing in. Mm -hmm. So it's a forest. It's basically a forest or a shrub or, or trees growing within a forest. So within this, then you'll find different species. So mangrove itself is not a species. Okay. I would say it's a collection of these different species of plants that grow along the coastline. Coastline, okay. The saline waters, yes. What are some of the threats that they face? Uh, several threats. 
mangroves facing is very important to note that some of these threats are also country dependent, depending on how each community is using their, their mangroves and depending on the level of protection each country is giving. But some of the main threats are, for example, conversion of mangrove swamps for shrimp farming, very common in uh, Asian countries, um, use of mangroves as timber for construction, building and construction by coastal communities, um, um, pollution and, uh, from different sources, uh, some of the main threats facing mangroves. And where can we find these mangroves in Africa? Uh, what are some of the places around the continent where we can find them? And why should somebody who lives inland, who doesn't live on these coastal areas, care about them? Uh, some of the places where we find mangroves, uh, for example, uh, I would say along the Kenyan coast or along uh, what we refer to as the Western, Western Indian Ocean areas, that's where I'm very conversant with, the coast of Seychelles, Mozambique. Uh, also in West Africa, they're found there. Uh, but I'm quite conversant with those that are found along the, the, the coastlines of the Western Indian Ocean and mainly in Kenya. Mm. And in the recent times, I've also visited Brazil. So I got to see the Amazon mangroves in, in Kurusa region of Para. Yeah. And again, I guess the second part of that question was that why is it that somebody, why would somebody that doesn't live uh, on the coastline care about the health of the mangroves? Like I mentioned to you initially when we began that mangroves are very important because they sequester carbon. But also when you cut mangroves, they then, because their carbon sinks, then they will release this carbon back into the environment because of the peat soil that they have. On the, on, the, on the places where they grow, they have a thick um, soil where they grow, which is like mud. So if you cut them, then they emit this, uh, cut the mangoes, they'll emit this uh, carbon. But also if you leave them intact, then they'll sequester, they'll take in the carbon. Mm. So that's why it's very important that we conserve, we conserve mangoes and also, of course, replant them in places where they've been degraded. Now, you've traveled to places outside of Kenya to study these mangroves. Do you find that the communities around these areas understand the importance of the mangroves? And what do you tell them about their role in protecting and uh, restoring the mangroves? Yeah, thanks for that interesting question. Communities are quite important when we talk about conservation and that's why it's very important that we look at conservation from an integrative approach where we don't leave the community members behind uh, reason being that they, they, they are the ones who are directly impacted if we lose mangroves they will they will lose the benefits that they get from mangroves for example if we clear all the mangroves like i mentioned they're important for coastal protection from for example storms like tsunamis uh, when they come so if you don't tell them that this system is important for this role of the coastal protection and then they we end up losing all the mangroves then the consequences will be faced by the community members this is why they play a very important role and also culturally some communities must just get fish <laughs> from the uh, from the waters so 
this is again if we lose this system then it means they will not get this fish which may be for which may be very important for their subsistence use right and also just for 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 food and maybe they also sell them and get some money for their income so it's a, it's a very important um need for us to to be able to include communities when we talk about conservation of mangroves because they're the, the the first i would say the primary dependent of the mangrove ecosystem is the communities around them. That was Dr. Margaret Awar, an environmental scientist and national geographic explorer. She has worked on research on mangrove forests in Kenya and Brazil as part of the National Geographic and Rolex Perpetual Planet Amazon Expedition. You're listening to Upfront on The Voice of America. Let's take a quick break. Heather Maxwell, host of Music Time in Africa. Join me every Saturday and Sunday for an hour of awesome African music. Like to stay on top of new music trends? Breakout artists? New releases? Maybe you just love the classic styles and artists of the past. Or simply the sound and feel of a good beat. Whatever your pleasure, you can get it every week right here on Music Time in Africa. We are back with Dr. Margaret Owar, an environmental scientist and National Geographic explorer. She works on mangroves in areas like Kenya and Brazil as part of the National Geographic and Rolex Perpetual Plan Amazon Expedition. Talk to us about your work in Brazil around mangroves. What were some of your findings on the relationship between the communities, say, in Brazil and the communities in Kenya, the coastal communities in Kenya, in how they relate to the mangroves? My, my work in Brazil was quite interesting and uh, of course, it was a collaborative research, and some of the main uh, findings in having worked or carried out the same research in Kenya using the same tools and then now applying the same tools of research in Brazil, we found we found that uh, the communities in Brazil, uh, you the sort of their approach and use of the mangroves was a bit different from the Kenyan context and also the pressure they put on their mangrove systems. For for example, it it in this particular region where we were, it came out very clearly that this community are very dependent on mangrove for fisheries, heavily dependent, such that I think in every meal they were having those fish on the table. So that that for me was quite quite uh, impactful, uh, and show, it shows that if these systems are lost, then these people really where will they get their their livelihood? Unlike in Kenya, there were other sources of income for local community members, are not solely reliant on uh, on fisheries. For example, they will uh, they will harvest honey for use. So, those were some of the some of the main uh, important results. I will I will report basically what we saw. But then, we, in both situations, it was very clear that the communities really need the mangroves for their for their survival. For example, in one in one instance, a lady who told us if she doesn't go to the mangroves in a day to collect crabs, then she has no food. So basically, she has to be in the mangroves every day collecting crabs. 
This is something I didn't experience in the Kenyan case. And also in the mangroves in Brazil, the the, the pressure on uh, cutting for like fuel wood is not so much like in the Kenyan context. So it was it was quite interesting to see how for them, uh, the people in Brazil, they believe in the cultural, they have a cultural event they, they take that takes place within the mangroves where they go and play in the mud. It's kind of a, I think it's kind of spiritual <laughs> that people go and have like a carnival in, in the in the in the mangroves in Kenya. I didn't I didn't see this. Yeah, so to, the the difference was coming out clearly more on the how the different communities use the, the mangrove for for different benefits. Yeah. So I guess in Brazil, there's more of an understanding about the role of the mangroves in the sustenance of the community. In that they provide the fish and other types of seafood for them to for their food. I wouldn't say that they, in Brazil there's much of understanding. I think the level of understanding of the different community groups on the importance of mangroves was visible. It's just that how the different communities in Kenya and in Brazil were using their their mangroves um, is what was coming out of the, a bit different. You see, like in in Brazil, like I've mentioned, it was the cultural. Uh, use was very strong in Kenya. What I will call provisioning services like fish, timber were coming out very strong. You see, uh, use of mangroves for medicine. So it was about resource use that was quite clear. But in terms of appreciation of importance and why mangroves should be there and should be protected, both communities were were quite conversant with this. And with that, we come to the end of our show today. Many thanks to our guests. Remember to connect with us on our social media platforms. We are at VOA Upfront on Facebook and on Instagram. Till next time, I'm Jackson Vungani in Washington, wishing you a great week ahead, Africa.